following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning. Merry Christmas, maybe. Uh, Walt didn't know it, but he had a great uh, introduction to my message with his poem this morning. I've titled my message, Away in a Manger. Uh, as we look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to turn there. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And uh, we'll be reciting this together from memory because we all know this so well. Ready? No, I'll read it. But I think we could actually do this together. But, uh, but let me read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, this uh, really is, uh, I would say, probably the most quoted passage. And of course, we could read on. Uh, we kind of covered it already in the uh, Advent reading. The next verses eight, eight through twenty that look at uh, the shepherds. Um, John 3.16 might be the most memorized verse in the Bible, but I think this is probably the most read. Uh, and we already read it, you know, part of it once this morning. I'm sure we probably read it already this past Advent season. Um, it, gets, it, uh, it gets read every Christmas multiple times. Uh, we read it in our family home, in our home on Christmas morning. As far back as, as I can remember, we've read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Uh, and, and I think we probably could, uh, if we try just all together collectively recite it, cause, not because we memorize it, but just because it's so common. Um, but there's always danger in, in what's super familiar. And familiar is not the same as understanding. Uh, and in fact, there's probably very few passages in Scripture that are surrounded by mis, more misunderstanding or misun, misinformation because it's so familiar. Um, and especially verses 1 through 7. Um, and not so much because of what's in the passage that leads to misunderstanding, uh, as much as what's, what's left out of this passage. And uh, these seven verses are really quite short, brief. Uh, it's a very uh, simple explanation of Jesus' birth uh, that, that, that leaves a lot unanswered. And so because of that, uh, uh, you know, we have all these questions and a lot of the misinformation comes because we've tried to answer the questions that the Bible doesn't answer. Uh, but it's hard not to because these questions are just, they're just there, right? Um, why didn't, like for example, if, if God wanted, needed Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, why did he pick somebody who lived in Nazareth? Like it seems a lot more efficient to just pick somebody who already lives in Bethlehem, right? Uh, but Jesus doesn't, uh, God doesn't work that way. Um, Joseph had to register in Bethlehem, but why did Mary go along when she was nine months pregnant? 
And all pregnant women who have had babies and or who are pregnant would say, yeah, amen. Why, why would you do that to yourself, right? You stay. Because she wasn't required to go. Uh, Joseph was a descendant. And Joseph had to go, not Mary. So why did she go with, with him? Uh, and, and, and there's all the questions about how she felt about this whole thing. Right? And, and I'm sure I probably preach sermons right. I, I, I try to guess what Mary was feeling, right? And you know, was she was she grumbling about it? Was she frustrated that she had to go on this trip? Was she stressed that you know this happened right as she was you know nine months pregnant? Um, and of course, we want to project onto Mary uh, how we would think about it in our modern world, where there's hospitals and good medical care, and where we all live in nice houses, and we think how horrible it must have been for her to you know, have to give birth in a in a barn. Uh, but is that really how she felt about it, right? Do we know that? Well, the, the Bible doesn't actually say. It doesn't tell us how she felt about it. Um, and why was Joseph living in Nazareth when he was from Bethlehem? Uh, was he dirt poor or was he a kind of a wealthy carpenter? We don't know. Right? These are questions that the text just does not answer. Um, and what about that angry innkeeper who had no compassion for a pregnant lady, Right? Well, actually, there is no innkeeper in this in this account, right? Uh, it doesn't say anything about an innkeeper, but right where we project all these things onto the story, and uh, and so we build this kind of idea of what Christmas is about based on not so much what's in this passage, but what we've added to it. Um, and and here's the real the key question I want to kind of look at today and think about a little more is who is really the main character of this story? Who is this account in verses 1 through 7 really all about? Of course, the Sunday school answer, it's about Jesus. Um, but is it really? Is it really about Jesus? Uh, I'm not so sure, actually, that he's really the main character of this story. So let's look at it. Let's, uh, let's actually, this is what we're going to do. We're going to actually review the facts. Okay, so we're going to go through these seven verses. And we're going to actually look at the facts of what Luke wrote in, in this account, and then we're going to uh, separate kind of the fact from the fiction a little, and I'm going to probably wreck your whole view of Christmas at some level, sorry, pre-disclaimer right up front, um, but we'll do that, and then, and then we're going to think about what, what is the real message of, this, of these seven verses, um, what, what is the point that Luke is trying to make here in these seven verses. So first, let's survey the characters, okay? Who actually are the characters in the story, and which one of them is maybe the lead role or lead actor in this, in this scene? Well, first of all, we get Caesar Augustus, right? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. Uh, pre-brief history lesson, Caesar Augustus was born in 63 B.C. under the name Octavian. Okay, he wasn't, he didn't, wasn't born as Caesar Augustus. Uh, he was born Octavian. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Uh, he became kind of um, the emperor over the whole Roman Empire, but it was a bit of a process. Uh, when Julius Caesar was assassinated, uh, Octavian was named chief heir and ruler, but he shared his role with two other people. And there's some fancy Greek word, a triumvirate or triumvirate or try something or other, meaning three people got to, got to be ruling. Now you can imagine how this would work. Uh, you get to be ruler with two other people, so who's really in charge, right? Well, it didn't last long because um, the two other people were Mark Antony, some of you may remember that name, and Lupidus. 
Well, Lupidus fell from power in 36 BC, and then a short time later, Mark Antony fell in love with Cleopatra of Egypt, which forced uh, Octavian to go to war with him, and he defeated Mark Antony, and he uh, came out victor, champion, and in 27 BC, he was given the title Caesar Augustus, meaning the great Caesar, the august one, the eminent, the supreme one, right? And so he became really the first... um, uh, ruler over the whole Roman Empire. So he really was a pretty powerful person. And by this point, the, the, the uh, Roman Empire was huge. And so Luke describes it as this, he calls the whole world to be registered. Now, of course, it wasn't literally the whole world. People were not coming from Thailand to register uh, or other e- Asian countries. Uh, but, but it was significant. Like, it was like the, the kind of the civil, what, what Rome considered to be the civilized world all the region of the Mediterranean, all the way down to Africa. It's a massive area, and he was, he was the ruler, and he was a very good ruler. Uh, he issued in what was known as the Pax Romana, the era of great Roman peace, which really made the spread of the gospel uh, possible. Uh, and he started all kinds of building programs and really upgraded Rome to a whole other level of modernity and civilization. So, so that was uh, Caesar Augustus. And, of course, to pay for all of these building programs, he needed money. And when governments need money, what did they do? Take an offering? No, that's what churches do. Governments do what? Well, they tax people. And this registration was about taxation. Right? It was how they collected money and how they knew who they had to tax. So uh, Caesar starts this uh, worldwide uh, registration program to find out who's on the tax rolls and, and probably to collect money. And it's likely that there's some debate, and so if you're, if you're really into the scholarly details of it, I won't go into it all, but there's some debate about this census, uh, and I won't go into all of it, but probably the census didn't happen just all at one time. Uh, the census or the decree that went out that all the world should be registered probably took, well, we know, in fact, it took uh, many, many years because the Roman Empire was massive, and it didn't happen like all on one day or one month. It, it happened over a period of a number of years. And so the particular one that affects Mary and Joseph is obviously in, in Galilee and in, in, in Judea. And so they have to go register. Um, um, uh, so, what's, so what is Caesar's role in this play? Is he the main character? Well, no, he's not a main character, but he is a character. Uh, he is, he's significant, his role here, and, and Luke makes the effort of naming him. He could have just said, you know, there was a registration, and, and, but he, he named Caesar. Uh, and it's significant that Caesar was the most powerful man in the world at this time. And uh, I think Luke is certainly making a point here that uh, in the world's eyes, um, Caesar was in control. But uh, uh, for those who know the whole story know that Caesar was actually doing God's will, right? God needed to move uh, Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem because it was required that Jesus be born there. And God can move kingdoms and, and move the world to make that happen, right? Uh, he didn't choose somebody who lived in, in Bethlehem. Mary was the right person. Um, and he had to get Mary uh, to Bethlehem to have uh, the the Messiah born there. And it was no problem for God to sovereignly move Caesar and the world to make that happen, right? 
So uh, Caesar thought he was doing it to get taxes. Uh, he didn't know that the real reason was because this poor peasant couple needed to get from Nazareth uh, to Bethlehem. Right? And that's the sovereign hand of God working, right? So that's one character. Next character in the story, of course, is Joseph. Uh, we learn about Joseph next. Um, Joseph uh, also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered in the census with his betrothed who was with child. Okay, so the main point about uh, Joseph is he was also in Nazareth, uh, and he also needed to get to Bethlehem. Um, But what's most significant about him is that he is of royal blood, royal descent. He didn't go to Bethlehem just because it was his ancestral home, but it was his ancestral home because he was of the direct bloodline of David. And uh, Luke doesn't expound why that's important or necessary, but we know, and I think Luke implies it, and he assumes that his readers will will be uh, knowledgeable enough in the Scripture to know of the prophecy in Micah 5.2 that said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and that he would be a descendant of David. So, uh, so that's what we know about Joseph, and that's why he's important. He is the direct connection between the Messiah, Jesus, and David. And the Messiah has to be uh, a descendant, right? So, so it's checking off some boxes, some requirements for this child to be uh, Messiah and to fulfill prophecy. But the other thing we know about Joseph is that he's, he's engaged. He's betrothed. And his betrothed is pregnant. Okay, now, of course, the way this normally works is not in this order, right? You get betrothed first, then you get married, then you get pregnant. And so uh, in the way he describes Joseph's situation, it's a little bit awkward. And uh, uh, Luke could have, because he doesn't really, he's already kind of explained the whole virgin birth thing, but he's left Joseph completely out. And he could have said, uh, you know, he took along with him his wife. Uh, Matthew, by this point, describes Mary as Joseph's wife. Um, and he says, you know, as soon as, Joseph, as soon as Joseph found out from the angel that this was of God, he took Mary to be his wife. Uh, but he, had, he did not know her. He had no sexual contact with her until after the baby was born. But Luke handles that by just calling them still engaged. Uh, he took his pregnant fiance with him. Uh, so I don't know if he introduced himself that way, went to the inn, knocked on the door. Hi, this is my pregnant fiance. <laughs> Uh, maybe, probably not, actually. Uh, I'm sure Joseph wanted to call her his wife to spare some explanation. Um, um, uh, and, and the question comes up, and we'll see Mary in a minute, why, why, uh, why did she go with him? Right? If she's just engaged, uh, there wouldn't have been a, necessarily an expectation or obligation for her to go with Joseph. Um, but, but certainly we know that uh, this was an awkward situation for them back in Nazareth. Um, as soon as Mary found out, she disappears. She goes to visit Elizabeth for three months. But she comes back, she's starting to look pregnant, right? And people, you know, are not stupid. They go, yeah, Mary's been gone for three months. All of a sudden she shows up pregnant. And uh, Joseph marries her. Oh, yeah, sure, right, right? Like this isn't fooling anybody, right? So it was awkward. It was embarrassing, uh, it was um, certainly something that people in Nazareth would have been talking about. Uh, but we do know this, uh, that taking along his very pregnant wife uh, was not convenient. 
right? I'm sure, man, and I don't know if they had, and again, you know, we can speculate. Did they have some kind of conversation? Joseph's like, no, you need to stay here. And she's like, I'm not staying here. People are keep laughing at me. I'm going to the Joseph's like, no, you need to stay here because you're just going to slow me down. Right? Uh, you're going to have to go to the take bathroom stops all the time. I'm never going to get there. Uh, but, you know, I don't, we don't know, and it doesn't say, right? We don't know how that went down for them. Um, it, was, it was about a 29-mile journey from, Bethlehem, uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Um, and, and we do, you know, we do like to talk about how treacherous this would have been for, for Mary. Um, uh, and, you know, it doesn't say, did she walk? Like, what's worse, walking 29 miles when you're nine months pregnant? Or did she ride a donkey? Now, I'm not so sure riding a donkey may have been worse when you're nine months pregnant. I don't know. I've never been pregnant, so I just don't know. But they both seem like kind of poor options. Like, where's the bus? Like, Where's the bus, right? Or like grab or something. Um, no options back then. Um, what we do know, though, is that she chose to go with Joseph. Um, uh, rather than stay home where, where she had family to look after her, where it was comfortable, she knew people, right? And, and we, don't, we don't know. It doesn't say if her mom was even living. Uh, it, seems like, um, it seems like Mary would have wanted to be close to family, uh, to, to give birth. Uh, certainly in Nazareth, she would have known the mid- midwives and would have known where she could go and who could help her. Going to Bethlehem, she's going to a place that's very strange and foreign. But Luke leaves out uh, a lot of the details. He doesn't answer most of these questions. Uh, so is Joseph the main character of the story? Well, I'd say you can make a case that J- Joseph is certainly one of the main characters, right? Because... Uh, 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 Mary would not have gotten to Bethlehem without Joseph. So at some level, Joseph is certainly one of the main characters, uh, and and he plays a key role here. Next character, though, is Mary herself, uh, the pregnant lady, fiancé, who travels with Joseph. Um, So we we hear about her next. And while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, and and the, the Greek here would indicate uh, not, not, not absolutely, but it does kind of imply that this happened quickly, that, that they didn't go to Bethlehem and wait for two or three months, that pretty much when they got there, um, the time came, or literally the time was full. I think maybe the King James kind of translate that, in the fullness of time. It means, you know, her nine months was, was full. It was time. It was time to give birth. So, uh, while they were there, the time came, was full for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, so we know that she did travel with Joseph. Uh, what we don't know, just again, a bunch more questions that I want to know the answers to, right? Was she stressed out about this decision? Like, was she ag- Like, you know, you hear these sermons about how horrible this was for, for Mary. Um, uh, did she consider herself Joseph's wife, or did she think of herself as just his fiance? Uh, did she ride the 29 miles? Did she ride a donkey, which would be worse? Uh, did she complain or stress about it, or was she super chill? Again, we want to project on ourselves what, it would, what we think it would be like, but actually in her day and in her time, it may not have been such a big deal to walk 29 miles pregnant. Um, this may have been kind of something they just wouldn't even have thought about. We don't know, right? We don't know. Um, 
But what we do know is she, 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 she arrives and it's, it's time. And ready or not, you know, she gives birth. Um, and uh, we also know that there was no place for them. Uh, literally, the word here is there is no place. Uh, some translations, you know, we, uh, we, we say there's no room for them in the inn. Uh, but literally, there was no place. Uh, and it can mean that there was actually no actual place, or more, it could mean that there was a, no place that was suitable or appropriate. Uh, and the inn that's used here, the word for inn, uh, Luke uses kind of the wrong word, <laughs> or not the word you would expect. There's two words in the Greek that could describe an inn. Uh, the one is a place where travelers could rent a room for the night, what we would think of as a hotel, right? You drive up and you, and, and there is an innkeeper, and you pay a fee and you get a room that's yours. Uh, that's not the word, actually, that Luke uses. Uh, instead, he uses a word that could mean simply a, a, a guest bedroom in somebody's home. Or it could also refer to a common shelter where travelers could, could park for the night, uh, kind of a large, just open uh, building, or not necessarily open, but a, a larger building where it was just open to the public, a, a shelter where people could stay, uh, but without an innkeeper, and you didn't pay rent, it was just open to the public. Um, so, uh, contrary to what we often imagine, there probably was no innkeeper. Right? It could mean, Luke could be saying that if, if Joseph had family there, because it was his, his hometown, um, that none of the family had a guest bedroom. Right? There was no empty, available rooms for them with, with family. Or it could mean that the, the, this public shelter was, was, was not a space to be giving birth. Right? And not that there wasn't room, but it just wasn't appropriate. Like what lady would want to give birth in a big open room with lots of strangers around? Right? And so they may have elected for the stable just because it was more private and more... Uh, more appropriate for a place for her to give birth. Uh, so, yeah, the whole in- angry innkeeper who has no compassion, uh, he probably doesn't exist, right? That's something we probably added into the story. Um, um, and, you know, there's questions about the stable. Some people think it was a cave, uh, which is possible. Um, it, could, it could have been just a uh, a place where they kept the animals attached to the place where people lived, and that's oftentimes how they did it. Uh, and we see that even in Thailand in rural rural villages. Uh, I've slept in many rural places where you sleep upstairs and the pigs are downstairs, and at 4 o'clock in the morning they start getting awake and wake you up, and great fun. Uh, we don't know. Um, we do know, though, that it was a place where animals were kept. It was a stable, what we might call a barn, right, whatever it looked like. Um, and, and so, so, the, so, so, so here, there's more questions, no answers. Uh, it may be not always helpful to speculate. Uh, was it a cave? Was it a, you know, we don't know. And of course, the frustration for us is we don't know how to decorate our nativity scene. <laughs> like, like, how do we decorate our nativity scene if we don't know what the stable was like, right? Um, uh, but again, we're, we just want to look at the facts here, right? Uh, what we do know for sure is that the baby was laid in some kind of feed trough. That we know. Uh, he, the place was a, was a place where animals were kept, and the baby was laid in a feed trough. Um, uh, and again, uh, was Mary bothered by this? 
Was, was Mary going to Joseph, like, is this the best you can do for me? I'm pregnant. I'm going to give birth. We have to give birth in a barn? Or was she kind of like, I mean, in that day, maybe it just wasn't that big a deal. Maybe it's like, in fact, maybe Mary was going, you know, I like the barn. It's private, right? And at a time where homes uh, were probably not that much better than barns, I mean, they probably often had dirt floors, not always. Uh, maybe it wasn't that big a deal. Um, we may make it more dramatic than it was. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it was a big deal. Um, we do know this, though. It wasn't ideal. And it certainly wasn't uh, what you would expect of one born of royal blood. Right? Um, this is not where you would expect to find a king. One who was Messiah. Right? Uh, so, so certainly Mary is a key character. And in fact, I would say that maybe she is the key character in this story. Um, kind of everything builds up to her, actually. But there is one more character. Uh, and that is, the, uh, of course, it's like, where's Jesus? Well, of course, there is the baby, right? But what's interesting is um, the baby's just the baby, right? Uh, it doesn't say the Lord Jesus Messiah was born. No, it just says uh, Mary gave birth, and she took the baby that she just gave birth to, and she laid it in a manger after she wrapped it in swaddling cloths. Right? It's really about what Mary does to the baby that she just gave birth to. Uh, the baby is Mary's firstborn child. Right? Um, no mention is made of really who he is. Um, uh, he's just the baby. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, which... Um, uh, were, were strips of cloth that would have they would have bound the limbs of, of the child up in. Uh, when I first became a new father, I learned how to do the the baby burrito wrap. You know how to do that? They said, "No, this is how you do." It. The nurse showed me, like you know, you take you take this blanket, and you you wrap it this way and this way, and you make this little baby burrito. And they said, "The tighter, the better," because babies like that. It's soothing, and they feel you know they feel happy. So. And, and so certainly the swatting clothes kind of had that effect. It was calming for the baby. But uh, back in those days, they also had this uh, belief that by wrapping the limbs, it would keep them straight. Right? Uh, the point is this. This is what you would do to any newborn child. Right? It was not un- this, is not, this is not new. Like, this is what every mother did to their newborn child. But what was unique was, of course, laying it in a manger. That was not particularly normal. <laughs> um, it may not have been a big deal, but it wasn't normal. And we know it wasn't normal because it was a sign for the shepherds. And they said, uh, when, when the shepherds go out, uh, the way you'll know you found the right child is because he's wrapped in swaddling cloths, meaning he's a newborn, and he's lying in a manger. And it's kind of implying there, there's not going to be other kids lying in many mangers, right? This will be the only one. So that makes it easier to find and know you found the right one. right? So it was unique. Um, uh, so, so, but as you think about this, honestly, is the baby the main character of the story here? Well, not really, right? Not really. It, it, it's, it's more about Mary giving birth than it is about the appearance of the Messiah, right? Um, so, so, like, for example, you mean there was no light glowing around him, you know? Like, it doesn't say, and his head, you know, was a halo, and he was glowing in the dark, right? It doesn't actually say that. But yet, uh, that's kind of how he gets betrayed in our nativity scenes, right? Um, 
Interestingly, he, he is not the center of the scene with the sheep and donkeys gazing at him with starstruck wonder, like our nativity scenes, right? Um, it's not depicted that way at all, right? Um, there was no angel hovering overhead, illuminating the entire scene with a radiant beam of light that was zoomed in on Jesus. Not, not. No, it's about Mary. It's about this barn. It's about this baby that's born and laid in a feed trough. And, uh, and he's not really even the center of attention in the story. Right? Now, now, I'm not saying that in our nativities we can't do that because um, we, know the, we know the whole story and, and we know that Jesus is, of course, uh, in, in all of Scripture, the center of attention. And, so, and we know that, that ultimately this is about Jesus. But the way Luke describes it is different. Right? It's different. It's different than often how we picture it in our nativities or how we, uh, how we want to describe what happens here. So, so there's the characters. Uh, and, um, and like I said, the baby's not even named. Right? That's how much I know, I'm pretty sure Jesus is not the main focus of these seven verses because he's not even named. He's just the baby. Now, in, in verses 8 through 20, uh, we get another side of it. And if we had time this morning, we could talk about that. And certainly here, the angels announce the Messiah and, and this one born of God. And there's choruses and there are uh, angels with brilliant uh, light, right? And, and uh, the, the shepherds quake in fear. All of that happens, right? But not in these seven verses. And, and, and it's, uh, there's good reasons to, to separate these two accounts, so, so what is then the message of Christmas? Like if we look at these facts and what's going on in, in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, uh, what, what's the message? What's the point Luke is trying to make? Well, I think there's three things. Let me highlight real quickly. First, I think uh, Luke is highlighting the sovereignty of God, right? That, that, um, that God is the one who's in charge of the world. And, it is, and God can move uh, powerful leaders, no matter who they are, or how much they are opposed even to God and the church and Christians. Uh, I didn't mention this about Caesar Augustus, but he is also the one who first introduced emperor worship, the first one who called himself a divine God and expected his subjects in Rome to bow down and worship to him. And of course, later uh, in, in Acts, and after Christ rose and the church was born, this was a huge issue for the church because the church could not worship Caesar as a god. And it got them in all kinds of trouble with Rome. And it was the cause of much of the persecution against the church because they were seen to be un- unloyal uh, to Caesar. Right? Um, but, but God is sovereign even over his enemies. Uh, and it doesn't matter uh, who they are, how powerful, be the most powerful men in the whole world, uh, God will move these men to accomplish his purpose and his plan. Uh, and, and his will, his will and his plan will be done. And he is over everyone, every power, every kingdom. And I just wonder, especially in this season right now we're in, uh, is the modern church, the church of our day, far too worried about who the president is? <laughs> Uh, depending on what country you're from, 
but from some countries, uh, I think there's too much worry about who's the president, right? I think, I think maybe many Christians have put way too much trust in having the right world leaders in charge, thinking that that's going to solve their problems. Um, and I, I think in many Western nations, actually, that's the case. And here's the, tr- here's the reality. Uh, believe it or not, God does not need Trump to be president. <laughs> in fact, I'm not even sure God wants him to be president. Right? Um, that's going to become shocking for some Americans. Right? And uh, in some churches, I'd get burned at the stake for saying that. Uh, but, but here's the thing. God will accomplish this plan no matter who the leaders of world governments are. Right? Do we believe that? Like, are we putting our trust in a sovereign God who has power and authority to accomplish his will and purpose regardless of what world leaders are in charge? There's an election going on today in, in Thailand. And, and it's, it's not that we shouldn't vote or that we shouldn't vote with conscience and uh, elect people that we know, believe, in our values and also uh, would represent our character as Christians. Right? I think it's okay to do that. But, uh, but God appoints leaders and he's sovereign over leaders and he's in charge of the world regardless of who rules and who leads. So we as Christians need to be putting our trust in God, not in, not in leaders. Right? Uh, and God will, will accomplish his purpose and plan in our life, uh, even moving world leaders uh, to do his will, as we see with Caesar. Second uh, lesson I think we can learn is that Jesus is born both king and slave. We see in this passage that, that uh, it's important that, that uh, there's this link through Joseph to, to King David. Uh, the Messiah must be of royal blood. He must be heir to the throne of David. And certainly through Joseph, uh, Jesus has that connection. Not by blood, but through adoption. Right? So, so Jesus meets the qualifications uh, to be both king and messiah. Uh, and, and so that's important. But uh, we see in the, the nature and kind of birth that he had that he is not born like a king, right? He is born like a slave. Um, and, and when you look at the circumstances of his birth, you would not know that he was either king or messiah. Uh, and we see that, and, and I think the main point uh, Luke makes here is so humble was Jesus' birth. Right? So much was Jesus emptying himself of glory, uh, as we'll see in a minute in Philippians 2, that Jesus isn't even the star of his own birth. Like, I think that's the point. He's not the star of his own birth. Because he's born just a, a normal, regular, everyday baby. Right? And while babies are, are, are loved at birth, and they are celebrated at birth, uh, and, and they're made a big deal. Um, no more big deal was made about Jesus than any other baby, right? Uh, the only thing spectacular or noticeable about his birth was not how elevated it was, but how ordinary or even substandard it was. Um, 
And of course, the shepherds did uh, take notice. Nobody else took notice. That's the point. Like nobody in Bethlehem was lining up at the stable wanting to look at Jesus because it was unnoticed. And the only reason the shepherds noticed it was because the angels told them. Otherwise, it would have been completely missed. And so, uh, so we see in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, right, uh, that Jesus emptied himself of glory. Philippians 2, 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. God was, Jesus was God uh, eternal. right? He was equal to God the Father in, in nature, in character, in being. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He already had it. But he emptied himself by what? By taking the form of a slave, by being born in the likeness of men. Uh, and a slave doesn't mean that, Je- that Jesus was literally a slave, but it means that he took the status and position as the lowest rank in society. But that's what a slave was. A slave was at the lowest tier in, in the social hierarchy. And Jesus came at that level. And his birth shows us that. He emptied himself of all glory. And he took on the lowest position. And why did he do that? Was that really necessary? I mean, couldn't he have come and become God-man, taken on human flesh, and, and still been born with some respect, some dignity, some comfort? Uh, he could have. Uh, but that was not his purpose. His purpose was not to do this the easiest way possible. What was his purpose? His purpose was to be able to identify uh, with every human being to the very lowest level. Right? So Hebrew 4.15 tells us this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, no matter how low down we are, no matter how weak we are. We don't have a, a high priest who is unable to sympathize, to understand, to relate to what we go through. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right? Jesus wanted to identify with every human being. And so to do that, he, he had to go to the lowest common denominator. Right? And so he emptied himself. He took on a life, not of comfort, but of struggle, of of the ordinary of what we all deal with. Um, third lesson I think that we find here, third and last, is that uh, he is sovereign, he is slave and king, but also he comes as master. And even, even though he's not a star, even though he's uh, kind of a minor character here, even at that, uh, this baby Jesus, even before he's born, uh, he is, uh, as, as many babies do, governing the life of his mother, <laughs> right? Uh, he is dictating, uh, in some ways, her life. Um, and specifically, that she had to travel to Bethlehem. Uh, we don't know how the decision-making process went with her, but we know this, that it's what she had to do, right? It is what she had to do, um, and if you remember back uh, in, in Luke chapter 1, 
when the, when the angel visited Mary and uh, told her she's going to be the mother of a baby uh, uh, by means of the Holy Spirit, um, Mary replies and responds. And she says in uh, Luke one thirty eight, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. In other words, Mary says, I'm in. I am your servant, Lord. I am following you. I am here to do your will. Uh, let it be done according to your word. Um, now, did Mary know what she was actually saying yes to? Uh, maybe not, right? Like Having the baby part was good. Uh, I don't know that she understood the circumstances that would surround the birth or the rest of her life and Jesus' life. But that didn't matter. Uh, what mattered is that she uh, put herself in the place of God's servant. She yielded to God's plan, and she said, Yes, Lord, I will do whatever you want me to. Right? And so from that point on, Jesus became master over her life. Right? She went to Bethlehem because it's what was required of her by Jesus, who was Lord and master. Um, and, and so it is with all who would follow Jesus. Right? Uh, if you want to be a Christian, it is not just about Jesus dealing with your sin. That's super important, and, th- and that's part of what Jesus came for. But, but being a Christian is more than just having your sin dealt with through the blood of Jesus. It is being his follower. It is saying, Lord, I am your servant. May it be done to me according to your word. May your will and purpose and plan be accomplished in my life. Uh, it means that Jesus must be master and that he dictates and controls our life, as he did for Mary. Uh, that, that he has a purpose and plan, and he will tell us what that is, right? uh, and, as, it, as it was for Mary. And I don't know if she was, uh, at this point, willing or if she kind of regretted it, the thing is, it didn't matter. If she had a good attitude or a bad attitude about it, at this point, it didn't matter. She had already signed on the dotted line. Right? Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Mary and uh, her, her great psalm of praise. And we know about Mary that she was a woman who was in the Word and who reflected on Scripture and who had a remarkable level of maturity. I think she had a good attitude about all this. I think... Um, I think she was praising God step by step. But Luke doesn't tell us that, right? And, and, and good attitude or bad attitude, she signed the dotted line, and guess what? She is in the program now, right? And that's kind of how it is for us. Uh, here's the good news. If you're worried about God's will, don't worry. Uh, Mary didn't have to worry about God's will. God took care of his will, and, and she had really not a lot of choice in the matter, right? Uh, it just happened to her. And I think when you say, God, I am your servant, let it be done to me according to your word, God's going to make sure his will is accomplished in your life. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, but it's not always going to be convenient. It is not always going to be easy. And so it was with Mary. Uh, Having, giving birth to the Messiah did not mean a first-class first upgrade for Mary. For those of you that fly all the time, I and mean, a lot of us fly, have you ever gotten the, the upgrade to first class, anybody? 
it's both the best and worst thing that can ever happen to you. Right? It's the best because for that flight, I mean, you get to live like kings, right? And it's awesome. You get room and they, they bring you food uh, all the time. And like not food that everybody else gets. You get like real food, like good stuff. And it's all free and they treat you awesome. And uh, you get the, the chair that folds that into a bed and you get to actually really sleep. It's great, right? That's the good part. The bad part is, if you're like me, you go back to the life of the, of the, the nobody, the, the minion, back in the cattle car, and then it's ten times worse, right? Because you know how it could be, and it's not, right? That's the, the, the upgrade to first class. Um, Mary does not get an upgrade to first class. She does not show the, oh, I'm the mother of Jesus VIP card and get the, the deluxe suite at the end, right? Oh, and by the way, I'm pregnant too. No, no. No, there's no such thing. Because that was not Jesus' path. Right? Jesus' path was one of humility and suffering and serving. And so guess what? Those who follow him are going to be on the same path. Right? And of course, there is rewards at the end. And there are blessings. And probably most of us would, would be honest and say, we're, we're far more blessed than what we should be. Right? But, but, but it is a path that calls us to sacrifice and to suffering. And, and, and because that's the path of Jesus. So 1 John 3, 1 says this, Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. I love that part of John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. We are the children of God. Through Jesus coming, through his death, through his resurrection, we are the children of God. Amen. That is awesome. But it's interesting, the rest of this verse. You guys know what the rest of the verse is? <laughs> the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What in the world does that have to do with this whole thing? Right? Well, it's a reminder. Hey, you're the children of God. You are blessed. You are saved. You are dearly loved. But it is not an upgrade card to first class. Right? The world does not know you. The world does not care about you. The world is not going to give you special treatment because you're one of Jesus, God's children. Right? The world's not going to make this easier for you because you're a Christian. Why? Because they didn't know Jesus. And that's the point, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem and the whole town missed it. They did not know him. Right? Because Jesus veiled his glory. He emptied himself. He took on the role of a servant and he went to the cross. And the world did not see him. Right? But those with eyes of faith see. Right? So when we look at the story through the eyes of faith, we do know that Jesus is the center of this story. Right? We do know that this is all about Jesus. In spite of the circumstances surrounding it. Right? And we worship Jesus, uh, not because he was famous, not because he was exalted in his day, but because he died for us and he rose again and he is exalted and seated in, in heaven, now in glory. And so we worship him. And so we follow him right, as his servants who say, Lord, let it be done to me. According to your Let's pray.
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.